Before Hollywood became the film and television capital of the world, it didn't look much different than other western frontiers. The area surrounding Los Angeles was full of farmers, cowboys, and prospectors, all wanting their piece of acres of undeveloped land and gold. As the word got out about the sunny skies, the mild temps, and the dry weather, Americans began flocking to California. In 1887, a Mrs. Wilcox, wife of Harvey Wilcox, met a woman on a train trip who referred to her Florida summer home as Hollywood. Wilcox was so struck by the name that she suggested it to her husband, who would come to found a small Southern California town that would become synonymous with the American dream. I'm Jason Epperson, and this is the See America podcast. From coast to coast, we see America one mile at a time, discovering stops along the way that are eclectic, historic, ridiculous, breathtaking, inspiring, and humbling. This week, the Hollywood sign. This great destination is brought to you by Road Trippers, America's number one road trip planning app. Road Trippers helps people discover the world around them in an entirely new way by streamlining discovery, planning, booking, and navigation. Plan your unique journey at roadtrippers.com, then use the app as your ultimate travel guide and navigator. Adventure doesn't come from the fastest route. Start exploring at roadtrippers.com. Ten years after Wilcox founded Hollywood, lousy weather drove a small Chicago film company west to complete a shoot. It turned out to be an ideal place for filmmaking. Another studio followed and took up residence. Nestor Film Company from New Jersey filmed three pictures a week, one Western, one Eastern, and one comedy. Out East, Thomas Edison had begun suing rival film producers who were utilizing filmmaking and projection devices that he thought infringed on his kinetoscope technology. Many of these movie studios first fled to Cuba before word of California's ideal film shooting climate and landscape spread. Nearly overnight, old barns were turned into sound stages, springing up some 15 studios. Hollywood became the epicenter of filmmaking. By 1915, America was film-crazed. Hopeful actors fled to Hollywood with the dream of becoming stars. Studios, engaged in a cutthroat battle for survival, began to merge into larger studios, a few of which still exist today. By 1920, 40 million Americans were going to the movies each week. That's more tickets than are sold today. The rise of the film industry meant the rise of the wealthy class in the Los Angeles area. Fancy nightclubs and restaurants opened, peppered between opulent movie houses. Real estate had replaced gold prospecting as the newest get-rich craze. In 1923, Los Angeles Times publisher Harry Chandler 
became involved in a new development in Hollywood called Hollywood Land. To advertise this new neighborhood for the wealthy, he spent $21,000 on a massive billboard to promote it. The billboard consisted of 13 letters, each about 30 feet wide and 43 feet tall, constructed of three foot by nine foot metal squares, rigged together in an intricate frame of scaffolding, pipes, wires, and telephone poles. All of this stuff had to be hauled up craggy Mount Lee by laborers on dirt paths. Once constructed, it was illuminated with 4,020 watt bulbs spaced eight inches apart. At night, they blinked first holly, then wood, then finally land, punctuated by a giant period. When talkies arrived on the scene, the motion picture industry was spinning. The big studios frantically retooled, and acting careers were ruined and made overnight. Hollywood was booming, but the stock market wasn't. The studios relied heavily on speculative capital and were struck hard in the crash of 1929. But Americans needed to get away from the terrible reality of the Depression, and Hollywood was there to provide lavish, escapist productions. Hollywood would survive the crash, but not without its casualties. With the story of one woman, who was certainly not the last in a long line of tragedies related to the promise of fame and fortune in Hollywood, here's Abigail Trebu. The of sound synchronized with film promised new opportunities for vocally trained stage actors to shine on the silver screen, sparking a new wave of artists flocking to Tinseltown. Unfortunately, most were met with cold, hard rejection. Wells-born Peg Entwistle arrived in New York in the spring of 1913 at the age of five with her actor father, Robert Entwistle. Robert had appeared in several Broadway shows before his untimely demise at the hands of a hit-and-run motorist in 1922 on Park Avenue. Peg and her two younger half-brothers were taken in by their uncle, who had come to New York and worked as a manager to Broadway actors. By 1925, Peg was apprenticing with a Boston repertory theater where she was given an uncredited walk-on part in a Broadway production of Hamlet, which starred Ethel Barrymore, the then matriarch of a family whose acting pedigree spans 400 years right up to today's Drew Barrymore. Entwistle carried the king's train and brought in the poison cup. Entwistle went on to perform in 10 Broadway plays as a member of the New York Theater Guild between 1926 and 1932. Her longest running play was the 1927 hit Tommy, which ran for 232 performances and became the play for which she was most remembered. Entwistle was often cast as a comedian, most often the attractive, good-hearted ingenue. In 1929, she told a reporter, I would rather play roles that carry conviction. Maybe it's because they are the easiest and yet the hardest thing for me to do. To play any kind of an emotional scene, I must work up to a certain pitch. 
If I reach this in my first word, the rest of the words and lines take care of themselves. But if I fail, I have to build up the balance of the speeches, and in doing this, the whole characterization falls flat. I feel that I'm cheating myself. I don't know whether other actresses get this same reaction or not, but it does worry me. In early 1932, Entwistle made her last Broadway appearance in J.M. Barrie's Alice Sit by the Fire, which also starred Laurette Taylor, whose alcoholism led to the show being canceled. Entwistle and the other players were given only one week's salary. Peg Entwistle was one of Broadway's stars, but the hard times of the depression and the lure of the talkies would send her west. She packed her bags for Hollywood and moved in with her uncle on Beechwood Drive, virtually in the shadow of the Hollywood sign. She took a short-run role in a play at the Belasco Theater opposite a yet-to-be star Humphrey Bogart, receiving good reviews, and landed her only credited film role for RKO, 13 Women, a high-budget thriller. Entwistle played a small supporting role. She spent most of the summer of 1932 waiting for a real role to come in, but it never did. On the evening of September 18th, Peg told her uncle that she was going to meet some friends at a nearby drugstore. But it was a tragically sad lie. A woman was hiking below the Hollywood sign when she found a shoe, purse, and jacket. She opened the purse and found a suicide note, and then she looked down the mountain and saw the body below. Instead of going to the drugstore, Peg made her way to the nearby southern slope of Mount Lee to the foot of the Hollywood sign, climbed a workman's ladder to the top of the H, and jumped. Thirteen women premiered a month after her death, and according to Hollywood legend, a letter arrived the day after Peg's death from the Beverly Hills Playhouse. She was offered the lead role in a play about a woman driven to suicide. Dubbed the Hollywood sign girl by the tabloids, Peg Entwistle's life ended at only 24 years old. By the early 40s, the Hollywood land real estate development went bust, a casualty of the Depression. The sign, which hadn't been maintained in years, quietly became property of the city in 1944. It was now a de facto landmark, but it was falling apart, mirroring the film industry's vulnerability in the post-war climate. By the early 50s, 400 actors, writers, directors, and producers were blacklisted as suspected communists. Movies also faced a new competitor. By 1948, box office receipts plummeted 
from wartime highs due to the new advent of household television. From 1941 to 51, the number of TV sets in American homes skyrocketed from 10,000 to more than 12 million. Studios slashed payrolls, backlots sprouted weeds, and sound stages went dark. Filmmakers and distributors responded with a series of gimmicks, wider screens, 3D, Technicolor, stereo sound, even free meals. But television would also save Hollywood. TV companies flocked westward and snatched up old studios and lots. And by 1950, more sound stages were producing TV programs than movies. When the H on the Hollywood sign fell, leaving it as a misspelled eyesore, the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce finally came to the rescue. In 1949, they replaced the toppled H and removed the letters that spelled land and repaired the rest. The sign took its now iconic form. During the 60s, Hollywood suffered a mass exodus of residents and studios to the suburban San Fernando Valley and other places where there was a bit more room. By 1970, Paramount was the only studio left in town. In the void, Hollywood became overran with adult theaters and massage parlors. Crime soared, and the town's storied boulevards were ravaged by the same urban decay that hit Times Square, Chicago's Loop, and other downtowns across the country. The sign, too, reflected this urban flight. It grew rusted and dilapidated, nearly crumbling under its own weight. In 1973, the city of Los Angeles gave the sign official landmark status, but the ensuing ceremony, hosted by silent film star Gloria Swanson, was blanketed in a thick fog, ruining the event. It was an omen of the dark days ahead. That year, pranksters altered the sign's letters to read Hollyweed, advocating looser marijuana laws. By the late 70s, the top of the D and the entire third O toppled down Mount Lee, and an arsonist set fire to the bottom of the second L. The chamber determined that the sign required a complete rebuilding at a price tag of a quarter million dollars. Some of showbiz's most prominent names came to the rescue. In 1977, Fleetwood Mac pledged a charity concert, but local residents prevented it. But the next year, Hugh Hefner hosted a gala fundraiser at the Playboy Mansion, where individual sign letters were ceremonially auctioned off at $27,700 per letter. The effort to preserve the sign brought together an odd mix of celebrity sponsors. Glam rocker Alice Cooper bought an O in honor of Groucho Marx, while singing cowboy Gene Autry bought an L, and Andy Williams sponsored the W. The old sign was scrapped in August of 1978, and for three months, Hollywood had no sign. hundred and ninety-four tons of concrete, enamel, and steel later, the sign was reborn. A first step in a Hollywood revitalization effort that continues to this day. In 1980, a $90 million federal grant enabled Hollywood to launch a slew of redevelopment projects. In 89, Disney began a museum-grade rehabilitation of the El Capitan Theater. Ten years later, part of the Egyptian was restored to its glory. The Roosevelt Hotel and Pantages Theater all received makeovers during the last decades of the millennium. 
The Hollywood sign doesn't continue without controversy though. Access to it through overrun neighborhoods is a major pressure point, and pranks have continued over the years. In 2000, the Hollywood Sign Trust hired Panasonic to install a state-of-the-art security system comprised of a vast closed-circuit surveillance network, which can be viewed live on webcam. The system is monitored 24-7 to protect the sign and the neighborhood from unwanted visitors, as well as the danger of fire. In 2010, Hugh Hefner came to the sign's rescue again, presenting the Hollywood Sign Trust with a closing gift to the Save the Peak Capital campaign, which raised funds to purchase and protect the 138 endangered acres behind the Hollywood sign. Thanks to Mr. Hefner's contribution, grants from the Tiffany & Company Foundation and more, this land and the view will be forever protected. Originally intended to last just a year and a half, the Hollywood sign has endured nearly a hundred years and is still going strong. If you want to visit the Hollywood sign, there are two great places to see it from the front. One is on Hollywood Boulevard at the Hollywood and Highland Center, home of the Dolby Theater where the Academy Awards are broadcast. The center's designers made it a point to feature the distant Hollywood sign as the centerpiece of their architectural composition. The result is that photo ops of the sign can be found throughout the outdoor mall's levels. This is a great spot for a one-day Hollywood experience as you can also stroll the stars of the Walk of Fame and see the famous handprints and signatures at Grauman's Chinese Theater. You'll also get an eyeful of street performers of varying quality and unlicensed costume characters, but it's all part of the fun. Another great spot is the Griffith Observatory, a planetarium with free grounds and parking, offering fantastic views of the entire LA area. You can also take a bus to the observatory. At either place, just don't make the mistake I did. See the sign in the day. It's not lit at night. If you want to get up close and personal with the sign, the only real way to do it is a hike. Luckily, scenic hiking trails have been created to provide an excellent visitor experience. The easiest is the Mount Hollywood Trail, offering a side angle view of the sign. It has two starting points at Griffith Park. The three mile loop starts at Griffith Observatory's parking lot. A slightly longer access starts on a fire road just past the Greek theater where there's plenty of street parking. You can also use the restrooms at the observatory. This is a busy trail and summer can be scorching, so be sure to carry plenty of water and wear proper footwear. Snakes and other wildlife abound. A more difficult route, the Brush Canyon Trail, features a fun side trip to Adam West's Batcave, home of the Batmobile in the 60s Batman TV series. Locals know it as Bronson Caves, and there's a small parking lot close to the trailhead on Canyon Drive and an overflow dirt parking lot just down the road. The trail offers sensational views of the city and ends behind the Hollywood sign. The old rock quarry tunnel has figured in many movies, from 1925's Riders of the Purple Sage to 2010's Megashark vs. Crocosaurus. The 6.5 mile trail climbs more than a thousand feet through several ecosystems. You'll need at least three hours and plenty of water. You might see mule deer, bobcats, coyote, and even rattlesnakes along the way. Finally, the Cahuenga Peak Hike, across a short saddle from Mount Lee, runs through the latest 138-acre addition to Griffith Park, 
and offers wide-angle views of the Hollywood Reservoir and the San Fernando Valley. Suitable for the more experienced hiker, the trail is more rugged and less defined than the Canyon Boulevard Trail. But stunning views of the Hollywood sign in the city unfold as you meander through the Santa Monica Mountains, ascending above and behind the 45-foot-tall aluminum letters, where you look out over the Hollywood sign from behind to the towers of downtown Los Angeles, and on a clear day, the Blue Pacific. Authorized hiking trails are open from sunrise to sunset, 365 days a year. Information and trail maps are available at hollywoodsign.org. This episode of See America was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, with narration by Abigail Trebu. If you like the show, we'd love a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'd also like to invite you to follow the See America podcast on Instagram and Facebook and join the See America Facebook group, where we chat about some of America's great road trip destinations. If you're a national park lover, we hope you'll also check out the America's National Parks podcast or come listen to Abigail and me talk about our life on the road with our three boys at the RV Miles podcast. This great destination was brought to you by Road Trippers, America's number one road trip planning app. Plan your unique journey at roadtrippers.com, then use the app as your ultimate travel guide and navigator. Adventure doesn't come from the fastest route. Start exploring at roadtrippers.com. Roadtrippers.